You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, and I'm your host, Jennifer. This is episode 31, and we are so excited because this is our two-year anniversary. So we have been producing this show since November of 2018, and we really appreciate all your support um, for listening and subscribing. So please continue to do that so that we can continue to have these great conversations with other environmentalists. Um, in this episode, we talk with the folks at Local Terrain, which is another environmental podcast about indigenous stewardship and the importance of on sustainability. Um, so this is a discussion into how managing landscapes and agriculture using traditional practices can affect these indigenous communities, as well as a look at our food system and how um, it affects the environment and ways that we can, you know, get back to a more natural or traditional um, form of production. Thank you for listening. And please, again, spread the word. Um, we appreciate you. And let's geek out. You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. All right, so today we are joined by Andrew and Andrea. They are the hosts of the podcast Local Terrain. This is our first crossover podcast, so we're really excited mm-hmm. to have you guys on. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be it. here. This yeah. is also like our first uh, crossover, like podcast crossover, yeah. so very exciting yeah. for us too. Well, they actually reached out to me through Instagram. I guess they were followers of the show and um, wanted to partner up. So that's how we got connected. Um, They started Local Terrain a few months ago and are both full-time artists for a local studio in Minnesota where they live. Um, But their education background is in environmental science and anthropology. Local Terrain is geared around earth stewardship, indigenous activism, and community outreach. And today we're going to talk about indigenous stewardship which is something that I know they're both very passionate about. So can you guys start by just defining what is indigenous stewardship for us? Yeah, so indigenous stewardship, it's kind of like an umbrella term. Sometimes people will instead say indigenous knowledge, since indigenous knowledge is very much connected with uh, land management and earth stewardship. But the, the simplest way to put indigenous stewardship it's the farming practices and it's the conservation methods of native people and like pre-colonial communities. So another way to look at it is kind of like the antithesis to colonial agriculture or like European agriculture. But I don't really like that definition since there are also indigenous groups in Europe and they do have their own agricultural methods that uh, have been affected over the years and deviate from traditional farming as we think of it as well. Yeah, I think it's important. It's easy for us, like as Northern Americans, to think of Indigenous only as like North American indig- Indigenous people, but there are Indigenous communities all over the world. So this is really like a global thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to think of it as like based around a relationship between a group of people in the land that they're on. And Mm -hmm. a lot of that relationship is tied up with the fact that these people and this land have evolved together in tandem. And that's why there's such that strong relationship there. Um, And indigenous stewardship is like a term that is hard to kind of visualize. Like, what does that really mean? Like, what does that look like? Um, Indigenous stewardship is things like bison herding, 
in like the Midwest of the U.S. It's things like wild rice cultivation and harvesting in um, the, I mean, mostly I know Midwest stuff, <laughs> but um, things like wetland conservation, things like prescribed burns in the like California region in western u.s it's things or like australia like, as well or australia yeah. it's things like sustainable fishing practices and hunting practices um so that's kind of what that is so what are some of the things that the european settlers brought with them that are negative or the opposite of that i guess there's i would say there's three things that summarize the impact of colonial agriculture and three things that europeans brought with them and not necessarily out of malice, but because that's what they were familiar with and what they were used to. So when European colonizers came to both North America, South America, Australia, and even Asia, they saw pristine forests that they assumed had never been touched by humans. It was complete wilderness. And what they brought was sheep, wheat, and the fence. And all three of them kind of have a similar impact on the environment because with the fence, the fence really affects the way that we can manage land and keep like a good balance between consumption and, and management as well as conservation. And then with wheat, wheat is an annual plant that reduces water retention in a lot of soils. And then sheep are grazing animals that stomp on very delicate soils and cause them to be compacted, as well as taking away perennial plants that may have deep roots and also help with water retention. So I would say like the use of wheat farming, uh, sheep herding, and fences have caused desertification more than anything in the Western world, as well as Australia. Like, I feel like when a lot of us think of Australia, we think of like, like the, the outback, like yeah, red the waste outback, kind of. Kangaroos running across desert. And that landscape only existed after settler states came in and occupied the area. Before that, Australia looked a lot like what we imagine the French countryside to look like or the English countryside to look like where there's rich green grasses, there's trees growing, and an abundance of water resources available as well. So one thing um, that I think is interesting and kind of ties back to the idea of indigenous stewardship as an umbrella term, if you think about indigenous stewardship more like indigenous knowledge, you also get with the introduction of fences, that is a totally different way of thinking about um, land um, ownership. So you can't do things like have community bison herding if you have fences that fence off certain areas. You can't do things like have um, community harvesting. For instance, if you had fences around like your wild rice in the wetlands of Minnesota, you wouldn't really have wetlands with wild rice, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, I think also the adding on to the desertification that is caused by things like um, livestock, it partially comes down to the way that those livestock species graze. So a lot of them 
will graze by pulling up the entire plant. And obviously then you're left with nothing. Um, and with wheat, since it's an annual, you have to completely eradicate it and then replant it. Whereas a lot of the quote unquote native um, grasses were not annuals, they were perennials so that you wouldn't have to completely decimate that ecosystem in order to harvest from it. So it's like a very different styles. I think when you think of European um, agriculture, you think of like fenced plowed fields, you think of pastures, things like that, which were not a thing before Europeans. Yeah, there's records of the the first Australian settlers and what the landscape looked like when they stepped on the shores of northern Australia. And they kind of describe it as these like rolling hills of these like rich grasses and these huge trees. And it seemed like every time they took a step, they were seeing just an abundance of food and resources. And they, they thought to themselves and they wrote this in their diaries, like, wow, this land has so much opportunity. Yeah, so I much can't potential. Wait to, yeah, to bring my own resources and my own methods to this land. And then in those same diary entries, they also mention the communities that already exist there. And they kind of like hint towards, oh, interesting. It seems like they're harvesting this, but there's no way these people could be harvesting perennial wheat grasses. Like it was unimaginable to, to their world perception. So like, yeah, I think that with that example, it's like they came into this land thinking that it was wilderness when the land and the people had evolved together. So what they were actually witnessing was a cultivated landscape that just didn't look like the cultivated landscapes that they had created where they came from. Yeah. I'm gonna jump in real quick. Um, I feel like there's this very utopian picture that we're trying to like get back to, right? So mm -hmm. everything that you're kind of describing, but then, you know, skeptics out there might question, well, you know, we're already industrialized, we're already, you know, in this certain mode of how we grow and cultivate our food. So what is your proposal to try to, to fix the current situation we're in? Yeah, so I would say the colonial perspective of landscape is very driven towards this, this idea of utopia. And this has also like impacted the the Western and like the Eurocentric perspectives on what conservation should look like, what sustainability should look like. And the origins of this are actually deeply rooted in like German philosophy of what progress looks like and what land ownership looks like. But the perspectives of what progress looks like in other communities is significantly different so like utopia has this idea that we're on this like linear road and we're at this current location and eventually we'll get to that place in the near or distant future while a lot of indigenous communities perceive progress as more cyclical and there's always this place that we're trying to return to 
to sort of like ground ourselves and look at what the picture's like around us. So industrialization is definitely still something that is on the table with indigenous stewardship. And I think a good example of that would be Bolivia's current uh, approach to sustainability and industrialization because they're a significantly indigenous population and they have a lot of natural resources that a lot of the world wants. They actually sit on over half of the world's lithium salts. And lithium is a resource that's going to be super valuable in the future as we increase our dependency on electricity and we shift away from fossil fuels. But instead of perceiving this as a challenge to industrialize as quickly as we can and to ultimately get as much profit as possible, Bolivia is approaching it in a method where they are taking it slower and they're understanding or trying to understand what problems they may see in the future and then how to come back to their like baseline of what is appropriate and what's good for not just the population, but the the landscape that they live on as well. And I think um, kind of going back to your question, basically we need to get rid of or shift away from monoculture. I think that's the biggest um, downfall that we have right now. Um, I think that if we shift away from monoculture and we try to shift away from industrial farming, it will significantly benefit the ecosystems in which we live um, and it will be closer to indigenous stewardship and indigenous agricultural ways. Have you guys heard of um, like the three sisters crop farming method? Yeah, like corn, yeah. beans, and squash. Exactly, exactly. And so that idea of um, having more than one thing growing at the same time that all benefit each other in a different way and diversifying the resources that we're using, I think is really important. Also the idea of having fallow fields, I think that's the term fallow. Mm -hmm. When you let one of your, if you have like, let's say you have four fields, let just let one of them go for the season and let that soil replenish itself. Cause right now what we do with industrialized agriculture is we just, we're all about the production. It's like produce, produce, produce. So every single season we've got the same thing growing. And then we're like, oh man, we don't have the nutrients we need in the soil. So instead of letting the soil regenerate, we add a bunch of chemicals to that soil to try and reproduce that natural process that takes time. I think my opinion is that we need to diversify and we need to allow ourselves to slow down. We need to get back to like, you think about like fast fashion, like fast agriculture is also really not great for our environment and it's not good for our sustainability in terms of like allowing this community to survive as like a human community, you know? Does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just, I know that local farmers, you know, would do what's best for their land if they fully understood the repercussions of their current practice. Have mm -hmm. you spoken with any farmers and do you feel like they're just lacking the education or that it's a financial burden to make the switch? So right now it's, it's definitely the financial obligations. A lot of, at least speaking for American farmers, there's a lot of sort of 
games that are being played with them and the banks as far as loans for the equipment that they're required to use. And there's also this like marketing battle between organic agriculture versus traditional agriculture that a lot of farmers are already dealing with because with organic versus traditional farming, there's the understanding that there's not enough there's not enough topsoil for organic farming to feed the entire world right now. So there's this requirement for traditional farming. And I would say the same goes for in indigenous uh, stewardship and indigenous farming, where it's not that everyone should adopt indigenous practices for their agriculture, but it should be an element that helps us all sort of work towards uh, a unified goal and a, a way to manage the, the landscape. Yeah, I think the biggest barrier is basically the fact that we exist in a capitalist society, which is like, I mean, like, what are you going to do, you know? Um, but because we exist in a capitalist society and because we're driven by consumerism, the ability for farmers to step away from that system that's already in place and go towards like some of the practices we were talking about of going slower, diversifying, allowing fields to go fallow, that goes against everything that the system is telling them that they need to do to be able to survive and produce and like make money and like feed their families basically. So I think it's a systemic issue, which means it's a much bigger issue. Mm -hmm which kind and of it, stinks. It doesn't help that we have subsidies that favor one crop over another or, Oh, certainly, you know, yeah. pressure the farmers, like you said, to grow a certain amount of food and keep the fields full constantly. Yeah. Even, even using, yeah. Even using like a certain brands of seeds. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's wild out there, man. Have you guys yeah. read the book, um, the omnivore's dilemma by Michael Pollan? I have it, but I haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah, it's it goes into all of this really in depth, like how food is produced, how it's grown, um, the farming system, how broken it is. And it's really interesting. Um, I'm probably a little over halfway through it. And I mean, he, he, he goes in depth with like traditional agriculture and livestock, and then he looks at regenerative farming. And yeah, I think you'll find it interesting given. Yeah, it does sound like a good read. Yeah, yeah, it's it's on my my long list of books to read. <laughs> I actually I just that. finished um, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Have y'all heard of that one? Mm -hmm. So good. It is so good. One of the things I really like about it is that, so she's a Potawatomi um, Nation Scientist. member, and she's also a biologist and ecologist. Mm. And um, she writes in an extremely accessible, relatable way. So you're getting... She talks about indigenous stewardship. She talks about like her relationship to not only the land, but like the practices and the individual plants. And then she talks about like the science side of things as well. And I think that's a really good book for anyone who's interested in indigenous stewardship because it is so accessible and it's based, it's all based around stories. So it's very relatable and easy to consume, easy to like get you into the, the topic, I think. Yeah, I definitely need to give that a read. And then I also just quickly want to say when it comes to the individual farmer, I, I feel like the the 
the farmer in the US, as well as the rest of the world, right now is doing all that they can for survivorship, essentially. And I think a lot of the changes we want to see as scientists, as economists, and as like uh, naturalists is more on the, the the government and like the the global market than it is the individual farmer. Yeah, I think you know? they can only function in the systems that they are that they exist in, and so you have to change. So do like you have any specific policies that the government needs to change that you could mention? So it's uh, right now, there are a lot of treaties in the US at least that simply aren't being upheld. And a lot of the conflicts we see between indigenous groups and their land practices and their, their battle against mining companies, fracking companies and, and the like it is commercial more... fishing is also, yeah. Um... Commercial fishing is another really big one. Yeah, for sure. Is uh, it, it's essentially the the courts and judges d dismissing or not upholding treaties that already exist. So if there's like political action that people want to do, I would say the first and foremost important thing is to look up what indigenous communities you live on, like which live what, in. Yeah, yeah what nation you're you're occupied in, and then looking specifically at their history. And then what you can do to uphold the treaties that were granted to them and are no longer being upheld. Because the battle looks very different all, all across the world. Yeah. Even within the U.S., it just depends on, like, which nation and which community you're interacting with. They all have different issues. Um, I think my biggest bit of advice, I don't know any specific, like, I can't bring a specific instance of legislation to mind at the moment um but look into your local community and look at what the people running for office are doing look at the legislation that they want to put in place and how is that going to affect the communities that you live within because that's the that's the biggest thing that we can do as non-indigenous people is to use your vote to create a situation in which treaties can be upheld and legislation can be passed that will uphold those treaties and really support those communities. Yeah, I'd say a good example is probably what's happening to the Mi'kmaq fishers in Canada right yeah, now in Nova, Nova Scotia. Scotia. Yeah, in Nova Scotia. Yeah, because they have full fishing rights to a really lucrative part of the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. And not only does the commercial fishers from Nova Scotia have disputes with the indigenous fishermen, but they also have disputes with fishermen from Maine, US. And it's not necessarily being handled the best by like, say the RCMP, like the Canadian Mountain Police. <laughs> Chris yep. is like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> they're, yeah, they're... No. <laughs> yeah, they're not doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the Mounties there. Yeah, they're, they're kind of mudding it all up. There's been some like violent acts performed against these indigenous fisher uh, fishermen where their vans are being set on fire. Their property is being at risk of also being set on fire or looted or their completely lines are destroyed. Being cut. Yeah. Yeah. 
And here we thought the Canadians were just these you know, gentle, kind people. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, we do it, not have a great history with our uh, First Nations. Uh, and a lot of it is we weren't taught the stuff that my kids are learning in their history classes. I didn't learn growing mm -hmm. up. So for me, I feel there's anger there because I'm not mm -hmm. that I'm only I'll be 39 in a couple of weeks, but my 14 year old daughter knows more about our history than I ever learned. It was all the Canadian history was, you know, us kicking the Americans butts in 1812 and, <laughs> yeah. Lord and, you know, how parliament runs and stuff. And then that was it. So a lot of our reparations and a lot of any headway we're making now as a country has only been very, very recent. It's wild to me because I, like I said, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. So the education system there is totally nuts. I, there was no mention of any First Nations people. Like growing up, I didn't realize that like there are reservations, there are people still living. Like, mm -hmm. it's not that I didn't think that they existed. It's just that it just never even crossed my mind until I would come up here. So I have family that's up here. And so when I would visit, it was like, oh, they've got Indians in Minnesota. And then you're like, no, they're First Nations people. They're Indigenous people. Like, it's like you don't realize what you don't know until, mm -hmm. you know, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so my education about Indigenous communities started later than I would have liked. Um, mostly because you don't like we didn't learn like anything for us. It was like Revolutionary War, like Civil War. That's kind of it. Like, yeah, the war of northern aggression like that's still something that's like taught down there yeah it's Wait, like they seriously call yeah, it that yeah that's some people do yeah yeah some it's wild <laughs> so that's and your wild. your education about indigenous communities is totally different yeah so i'm a afakasi samoan so my dad is an indigenous pacific islander and then my mom is as white as whole milk like she's a <laughs> finnish blonde and like super white so at least my perspective has always been that there's an indigenous way of doing things and then there's the white way and i would never blame my mom for doing it the white way because it you shouldn't be blaming yourself for these systems of oppression you should be understanding that you've been failed as well by these systems because you haven't been provided the education to change things and to make like your own circumstances and outcomes better as well as your neighbors. So as, as a person who is a settler, it's important to understand that you're, you're not to blame. However, you were born into a system that, that wants you to perpetuate itself and you can educate yourself. And I definitely think that's important but you should never be angry at yourself or, or feel guilty for the, the situation you were put into. Yeah. All it's, we can do is grow, I guess. Yeah. It's tough to not have that guilt. Namaste. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think it's, it's tough to not have that guilt, but it's also like, I have, I always have to tell myself like your guilt is not helping anyone. Like you have to take that guilt and turn it into action for it to make a difference which can be hard sometimes. Yeah, it can be hard. And that's honestly one of the reasons why 
we started local terrain because as a, a citizen, it's so hard to just like sit back and, and watch everything that's happening and seeing podcasts such as your own with Sustainably Geeky. It's super encouraging to see uh, people that aren't like the, the professionals up in like the ivory tower mm. who are making all these decorations, but to see like common folk doing everything they can and like making their voices being heard like that's i i think it's like so great that like you guys are contributing your voices to the conversation and that's like our biggest hopes with local terrain is to like make sure that the conversation we're having right here is expanded to people's families and like to yeah it's also like normalizing talking about stuff like this it's like you don't have to only talk about environmentalism when you're in school you know like yeah, it's totally. not something that you should feel like you can't talk about because you don't think that you're educated i think that is something that affects everyone so everyone should have the ability to feel comfortable just like having a conversation about it yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's definitely um that's one of our goals is to make these topics more accessible for people yeah. and hopefully make it less intimidating like you said that oh this is a you know what climate change is such a complex crazy topic I, I i don't know anything about it or i could never talk about it but like you said once you just get it out there and you start discussing it with people it becomes easier so yeah we're we're glad that we have folks that uh are on our side with that <laughs> yeah. accessibility like listening to uh or like reading articles and papers and things like nature there's so much like lingo and jargon that's thrown around that makes it really intimidating for a lot of people to understand it. And in the academic world, indigenous stewardship is, it, it goes by an entirely different name. It goes by the terms ethnobotany and ethnogeology. And within those two like subsects of both biology and geology, it's totally riddled with language that isn't from the indigenous communities and isn't understandable by everyday people so it i think it just it alienates the topic more than it is already alienated by the fact that we operate within a society that is run by colonists like because we operate in that society it means that we aren't educated in it in indigenous knowledge it means that we aren't made aware that indigenous issues are ongoing and current like the fact that growing up i didn't realize that they were indigenous communities in georgia is like a prime example of that but yeah the system that we live in is suppressing those things because it is it exists to perpetuate itself so having that extend into like the world of academia only serves that purpose even more. So yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> it's definitely important, important to point out that um, environmentalism is intersectional with uh, race and indigenous justice and all of these other things that um, especially have been come to the forefront now uh, they're all related and they all need to be talked about together and not just in some, you know, fancy paper or something. So getting people to yeah. understand how everything's connected is really a big part of the overall environmental movement, I think. 
I totally agree. Folks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Chris and Jen, did y'all have any other questions or thoughts you wanted to throw out there? Um, I can throw out there, like, I guess, I guess I'm still just a little torn because it seems like, you know, we're trying to tell these local farmers to change their practices, but yet we have an increasing population and they don't have the funding to do so. So I guess if there's listeners on the call, they're, you know, they might want to know, like, well, what, what's going to fix it? Like, what can I do? And I know maybe activism and voting for the right person that supports these policies is helpful. Is there anything else that just the general citizen could do to assist in your cause? Yeah. Oh, totally. So, yeah, I totally understand your concern because changes in like legislation and the funding of farmers and agri the, the agricultural machine is super difficult, especially from the standpoint of a consumer such as all of us. So the only way we can really influence the market and like influence capitalism is by shifting what the demands are culturally. So as an individual, if you really want to contribute to encouraging indigenous stewardship, the best way to do that is to make indigenous stewardship profitable, at least in, in our current system. So I highly recommend people go out and try tasting foods that aren't made out of wheat or corn and maybe a, another like indigenous plant such as wild rice or taro or even bison like even just trying bison meat and encouraging that diversity of of food not only is it like great for your palate because you're experiencing awesome cuisines and food cultures that are worthy of the spotlight but you're encouraging farmers to take their uh chances at profit being something that's more sustainable for themselves as well as the the landscape that they're tilling like mm -hmm. at least in minnesota there's a few native chefs that are really on the come up right now mm -hmm. and the work that they're doing towards making native plants and native food like on trend and like super approachable as well is really great for the indigenous uh landscape yeah so like at least in minnesota we have um obviously wild rice is very popular up here um and most places that i have shopped at they all get their wild rice from the same place which is from the red lake reservation so that is something that the reservation harvests, they produce, they sell. So if we keep the demand there, that means that they will be able to continue to, to do that. Um, I think also you might not think that you have indigenous like foodways available to you in like whatever community that you happen to be in, but like Minnesota has multiple cafes that are indigenous run and they produce only indigenous food. Um, the sous chef is 
I can't remember his actual name, but um, he has a cookbook out. He's on Instagram and he does all indigenous food. Um, and he, I think he was on like New York Times or something. Yeah, I believe A little so. while ago. Um, and like try, try the stuff, like see what you can find and try it. And like, if, like you said, if we, if we try to increase the demand for these things and hopefully we can create a cultural shift. Yeah. And then even things like attending your local farmer's market mm -hmm. gives farmers opportunities to diversify their crops and not be as dependent on big box stores and like the, the, the primary uh, agricultural markets. Mm -hmm. So even something as simple as going to your farmer's market and getting to know your local farmers can really help give them financial freedom and then ultimately the, the freedom to make the changes and the adaptations they want to make as well. Because mm -hmm. honestly, a, a lot of farmers, they do want to be making these changes because they're also seeing the effects of traditional agriculture and industrialized agriculture on their crops. It's becoming more and more difficult for the local farmer to maintain their numbers and they a lot of them are understanding of the dilemma but they really don't have the resources so something as simple as going to the farmer's market to buy your onions and your potatoes is is a great opportunity for for them to diversify their markets mm -hmm. it's like it's essentially instagram for uh for farmers it's like opening up the the market to the everyday farmer yeah Okay, I feel better now. That's helpful. <laughs> it's, it's like it. It is a really. It's a. It's such a hard like question because it can feel like I feel the same way that you feel. It's like yeah, but like, what are we actually going to do? You know. Totally. And it's like it's really difficult to live in a system that like just beats down those ideas all the time. But I think I'm glad that you feel better. <laughs> and ultimately, like with indigenous stewardship the most important thing is that we're not just going down the road running down the road as fast as we can but we're stopping and re reflecting with one another and that includes us reflecting with the farmers so like going to the farmers market and actually getting face to face with the person that's making food in your community is that's the best thing you can do for indigenous stewardship and probably for agriculture as a whole yeah i think that the further away that we get from the industrialized agriculture that we have right now, the better we will be. And by supporting those local farmers, the like the further away you are from contributing to that industrialized agriculture. Yeah, yeah there's so many benefits to eating local. Like we've talked about on the show before it's it's a it's a no-brainer if you have a farmer's market near you or a co-op or something like that you can use so mm -hmm. chris were you going to jump in with something earlier i think i was um <laughs> just i um uh i grew up with my grandparents who are farmers um they're anymore because they're elderly um but they were farmers and my uncle is a farmer and my sister and my brother-in-law uh were sheep farmers for a short period of time and i have seen what the markets have done to their livelihoods my sister and my brother-in-law struggled 
after the market crash, they farmed sheep and they just couldn't get ahead. It just the price of sheep cut in half and they had to sell their farm and they were devastated because they loved it. And that was their big dream, but it just became financially impossible. Um, so that was heartbreaking for them because they had, I think they had 500 sheep. Wow. 502 wow. working dogs and, um, yeah. And it was just as soon, the first two years were fantastic. They were really great. And then the market just tanked and didn't come back and they had to sell everything. And then my grandparents, they were crop, crop farmers. And I remember my grandpa, he, we were driving along. He does. <laughs> so in rural Ontario, especially during certain times of the year, we have what's called crop inspectors. And they're generally a male of a certain age kind of weaving back and forth on the road because they're looking at the crops <laughs> yeah. and they're inspecting yeah. the crops so he does he used to do that and he would tell me and he would remember what every farmer along this road was planting and one guy who's just really upset he's like that's the second that's like the, how many years he's been planting corn he needs to be planting beans because he would tell me that the beans have like <laughs> 15 foot roots and it's better for the soil and so he always tried to whatever land they had, they would always try to rotate the crops every few years. Mm -hmm. And then my uncle, he owns a farm just about 20 minutes away from me and they have cattle. And he told me, what was it a couple months ago? He's like, it'd be cheaper to grow corn. <laughs> just take to take the cattle away, these locally grown cattle and um, just plant corn. It would be cheaper, but he won't. And he refuses. So he has a small herd, I think of 40, they're longhorn cattle um, because he, he, he believes it's more beneficial than just sort of tilling up the field and just planting a monoculture. Yeah. So, but it is, it's all driven by regulations, the market, um, whatever subsidies they get, it's not as much as you think. Um, it can become a, a monopoly very quickly. Um, certain farmers, came buy up a lot of land from, from other smaller struggling farmers. I know one family in, in um, another county, they have, they've bought up a lot of the local land because they can, because they're taking advantage of smaller farmers not being able to keep up. So it can become a monopoly really quickly. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I appreciate what you say about like how influenced it is by the the market and how a lot of farmers are just left by the wayside by mm -hmm. this market that they depend on and i feel like we really don't fully appreciate the the work and the effort that farmers contribute to something we all depend on mm -hmm. right like agriculture as soon as that collapses we're all left in the dust yeah but th they're probably like the last demographic to be acknowledged when it comes to to things like this mm-hmm and that's somewhere where indigenous knowledge would be really beneficial because it, it could accommodate farmers to have uh, systems and, and methods that allow them to keep this, this way of life for much longer than what the market wants them to, to, to stay in. So like, hopefully your your family gets to keep that that lifestyle and, and the, the, that farmland and not be bought out by big box farms and i feel like yeah one of the ways to do that is diversifying the way we are farming and to encourage the the market as best we can 
to accommodate that. So have any um, indigenous groups, whether in the in North America or other parts of the world, been able to hold on to these traditional methods and continue farming this way? Or have they had to kind of adapt to, you know, quote unquote, modern farming? <laughs> I, I think one of the best places to, to look at for this is probably South America. They have very similar biodiversity to North America, actually more biodiversity than us. And they have really uh, had a struggle with seed companies, especially that have these specific copyrights on, on their seed and really battling it out over who gets to claim ownership on their, on their crops. But to look at a place to, to bring up Bolivia again, they've done a great job to make sure that their national market is accommodating their indigenous and their local farmers. And it's very controversial because a large portion of Bolivia's agriculture is towards coca, which is the, the plant needed to, to produce cocaine. But when you look at market demands and, and things like that, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a, a native plant that has had its demands increased and ultimately like its, it, its response has been drastically impacted by things like the CIA, but Evo Morales and MAS, which is the leading political group in Bolivia, have done their best efforts to make sure that even with the shifting impact of like the that market around the world, that the indigenous farmers themselves are able to sustain themselves and if need be shift to to other resources or other other crops that are both beneficial for them, but also maintaining indigenous practice. I think also Bolivia has a law about, um, it basically gives the land the same rights as a human. So yeah. you are not necessarily able to take advantage of the land in the same way that you can say in America, um, because they're just, just not the same legislation protecting the ecosystems in that way. Um, so it kind of rolls back around to like creating less legislation that will allow that to happen. So. But ultimately it's a indigenous stewardships and uphill battle when we're talking about uh, these global economies and these behemoths of corporations that have such a heavy influence on our economy and our agriculture, it's really difficult to maintain indigenous practices. So I would, I would argue that there, there isn't a single indigenous lifestyle that hasn't been impacted by industrialization and, and, uh, and globalization really. I think the only example that I can think of at this moment that is like the closest to probably indigenous ways Actually, I have two examples. The first one would be um, rice paddies in India. Now, Mm. I don't have, like, I went to India in, like, 2008, and this is solely based on the fact that, like, 
we were in a taxi driving by some rice patties and I was like, that's been happening forever. Um, I think also probably in China, there are communities that are, have been um, cultivating rice in the same way for thousands of years. But the original example that I thought of was in Samoa, the taro is like, so taro like a potato, basically. Um, it's like a purple sweet potato. Um, they farm that on their own land, basically. Mm -hmm. And that has not become something that is so demanded by a global market that they have to change yet. So that's the only example I can think of, which is kind <laughs> of like, you know. Yeah, that's a tricky question for but, sure. Yeah, and it doesn't help that um, at least in America and probably in other countries, uh, when indigenous people were forced onto reservations, you know, colonists tried to force their land boundaries on them as well. Like you get, you know, 20 acres each, but a lot of these communities didn't have the concept of personal land. It was very communal and forcing them to have only a specific amount of land, I think went against a lot of those practices and discouraged um, indigenous practices in a lot of ways. Yeah, Certainly. and I think kind of compiling on top of that is the fact that a lot of indigenous practices full stop were basically outlawed like the practices were just wiped off the map because you were not allowed to do them regardless of like whether they were actually beneficial to the environment or not because it was an expression of your culture and you could not have that like a lot of that stuff has just been eradicated and it's so sad but forcing them that's... to speak english and yeah exactly yeah yeah boarding schools and things mm -hmm. like that yeah i, I guess an, another example of what would be considered indigenous stewardship is a, a, a story that is often under or unlooked with world war ii and the the nazi occupation of germany so like hitler everyone knows that he or like people like rumor like oh he was a painter before he was in politics and he used to be like this different guy but when he was a painter he was looking at landscape paintings of German and Danish painters. And these painters had this concept of looking out into the horizon and seeing vast landscapes that are, are there for the taking, essentially. And Hitler brought these concepts, which are called Landschaft, which has heavily influenced like the American perspective on conservation even. But he took these concepts and he told the German people, hey, you know what? Polish people, they aren't managing their land properly and we should go in and we should show them how to, how to till their own crops and things like that. Mm -hmm. And ultimately the, the efforts of the Nazi party were uh, efforts against indigenous stewardship and making sure that local people are taking care of their their own crops. So like even today, when we look at small family farmers who are being forced to adapt and shift according to these huge monopoly farms, it's the same concept, it's the same narrative where it's it's small local communities who are being heavily impacted by these behemoths that think they can do it better. Yeah. 
soul cycles. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's important that you mention that just because if we can't learn from the past, then, you know, what are we going to do in the future, yeah. right? So yeah. um, one thing I'd like to just throw out there so we can end on a positive note is, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I'm just like an optimistic at heart. I can't help myself. So because um, we can go down this rabbit hole and it'll get dark really quickly, right? So, 100%, yeah. <laughs> no. So I think it's important that we've mentioned these places that are doing it right, have figured it out, um, you know, focus on those champions and just highlight their successes and look at the numbers, look at the the, the costs of what it really did take for them to, to make that happen so that it's a little bit more palatable and approachable for those farmers out there that are a little scared of making the jump if, you know, they think they can't, can't make it. Um, so anyways, one of the programs we started with the Centec Sustainable Communities Partnership that we started in Colleen with the local governments um, was we partnered with some of the school districts to have the kids get involved in various environmental activities. And one of them was to start building community gardens. Um, so on Fort Hood in Texas, at the Army base specifically, I know of a number of community gardens that got started and the neighborhoods um, you know, got their kids involved in actually growing their own food. So if we can only start with the kids, then maybe that's where we go. But um, I think it's really encouraging to see children just at first, like understand where their food comes from and how it totally. grows. And local, you know, getting that local community involvement. Um, so it is an indigenous <laughs> practice of our own, if you will, of just getting people together and getting their hands dirty and, you know, growing their own food, um, especially if our industrialized um, system goes to crap. Um, we have a backup <laughs> plan. <laughs> yeah. So um, I know I totally watched way too many documentaries and freaked myself out a long time ago. And I was like, um, husband, <laughs> we need to build a garden in the backyard so that I know that I can do it <laughs> in case, you know, um, and being in Texas, it took like a ton of water. So, um, it was a little frustrating, but I, I was able, I got so happy seeing like seeds just sprout, like watching it. <laughs> it is so very exciting. It's so know, rewarding. It's just like, it made me, it made my soul happy. So anyone who has not done that, I highly um, encourage When you it. eat that first $300 tomato, <laughs> it's so worth it, right? Yep. Yeah. We have friends that started up like their own chicken coop and they were like, this one yes. egg, Michelle, right? She was like, yeah. this one egg cost me $300. <laughs> By the time you buy the chickens and the coop and the food and yeah. Yeah. It's up. Lots of trial and error along the way. and But yeah. that's why I like the community aspect of it is because there's like there's um, money out there to get these things started from your local government. And so it's not all on you to just put it in your backyard and take care of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of going back to the way things should have been where we're in a community and we all were a tribe of our own village, right? And like <laughs> growing totally. our own stuff. So, so this is how you can kind of flip the conversation to okay well this is the world we live in now so what are we going to do about it and the first step is like you said you know use your money and your buying power to make an impact yeah i think jumping off of that idea one thing that you can do 
as well is if you do have a community where like say a couple of friends and you ha all have gardens or whatever create that community of sharing like this is all stuff that we can all use maybe i have so many beans i don't know what to do with them and you've got so many eggs you don't know what to do with them swap them share seeds like share those resources because that's what's gonna make the community thrive even more is sharing the resources that you do have and like teaching each other about the knowledge that you have gained yeah i think that's awesome yeah we're certainly stronger together yeah <laughs> we can do it yeah. also it's um one thing i wanted to just point out is that if you don't know how you can like directly help the indigenous communities in your area see what social media they have see what they're doing online it's not there they will be asking for people to do stuff and so you it's it's out there for you to find what you can do if it's like hey we need a supply drop on thursday can you be the courier for this or we need people to show up to this protest or um this person is making jewelry and they're selling it like there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can participate in helping that community thrive and i think that part of that is just engaging with that community locally too there's a lot of really awesome stuff happening I mean, it could be going to an art show by a Native artist. It could be reading a book by a Native author. It could be consuming a film by a Native filmmaker. You know, there's a lot of really amazing creative content out there, regardless of like the media um, that you can consume, which is done by Native creators too. Awesome. Great yeah. point. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to quickly say, we we are still in like the the COVID nineteen like self isolation, but it's so important to keep in mind and remember that we're not alone in this, and that there are other people out there that are geared towards these same goals and like these same dreams, and it's by the the cooperation we see and like the the communities that we build that we'll really start to see the the progress and and be able to see each, each other like rising up and overcoming challenges that that might be in our way. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, talking about in, indigenous stewardship, it can very quickly become like a doomsday conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but even with all of those barriers, even with all of those obstacles, it's when we build a community together and we talk about scary things and and we start building like an intimate relationship with the land that we live on so like teaching kids to get their hands dirty and understand that it's not only that it's them and the land but that they are a part of the land is is so important it's so it's so essential to 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 share with other people that it's it's all of us we're all in this together and we, we're all in, influenced by it and we're, we're all within the capacity to change it if we want to. Yeah, and um, on that note, you mentioned earlier uh, finding out what tribes or what land you're living on. So I remember hearing about this number you can text a while back and I just looked it up. So if you text your zip code to 907-312-5085, it will tell you what um, tribes 
either currently are on your land or used to live on your land. So that's kind of cool. Um, and then it sends you a link with more information about those those tribes as well. So, yeah, I've actually yeah. I've used that number and uh, they're actually pretty accurate with with their stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. it's really Which cool to see. And then you can I think there's also a map um, if you text the number and then go to the link, you can see the map and you can see mm -hmm. like globally or at least within the U.S. like all of the different places. And it's very visual interactive. Yeah. Well, again, the number is 907-312-5085 if you're listening and want to check out where you're, or who lives where you are. So do you guys have anything else you would share with our listeners that maybe we haven't covered or any resources that you'd suggest for them to check out? Yeah, I would definitely encourage people to go and check out the Indigenous Climate Action Group. It's essentially just Indigenous Climate Action on YouTube. And then I also have to give a shout out to the Pacific Climate Warriors. Their motto is, we're not drowning, we're fighting. And right now in the Pacific, a lot of our islands and a lot of our homes are under threat due to sea level rise. And a lot of our areas of like cultural history are under threat of being taken away. But it's with the spoken word and it's with storytelling that we will be able to maintain our history and maintain our culture. So I highly recommend going checking out the stories that are being told by the Pacific Climate Warriors and seeing the really cool stuff being shared by uh, by those activists and and uh, the peeps over there. Mm -hmm. Those are great awesome. suggestions. I just got goosebumps. <laughs> 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 well, I've seen a lot of the work that they've been doing, so thank you for the reminder. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I'm excited to look into that. Um, well, if that's if nobody has anything else, then we will move on to our green life hacks. And um, would you guys like to go first with yours, uh, Andrew and Andrea? Sure. Oh. Should we do one each? Sure. Do you want to go first? <laughs> Or I can go first. Yeah, you go first. My, my green hack, I absolutely love bar shampoo and bar hair conditioner. It's reducing like having to use plastic in the shower. And honestly, I I love like how my hair feels after <laughs> I use a bar conditioner. I just feel like it's way less... You should less... have a fan on you. <laughs> yeah. Like a shampoo it's, commercial. It's like way less aggressive than the like liquid soaps you get out of like big bottles and uh, it's it's less plastic and you actually use the right amount i feel like with yeah. you, if you have liquid soap it's really easy to use way too much and then like half of it goes down the drain whereas if you have a bar you're only actually taking the right amount off of the bar because you can tell if you've got way too many suds in your <laughs> hair and it's just like ah what am i doing with all these bubbles and there's just something like way more pleasing to look at like the, all these natural toned bars of soap in your shower than like a big purple Aussie bottle or something. Or yeah, like... you just got to remember which bars for what. Yeah, definitely that. <laughs> um, I think my green life hack is to, um, how do I phrase this? Um, get away from automobiles as much as I possibly can. So um trying to if i can walk somewhere walk there instead if i can bike somewhere bike there instead um we just recently got some winter bikes which i have never been 
enticed to do before um and it's actually a blast so um as much as you can use your own body as your engine and get away from producing more carbon in the atmosphere get away from cars as much as you possibly can or do things like rideshare or take the bus um i know that not all of those options are available to everyone but try and walk so for us texans what is a winter bike What's um, the so <laughs> basically so i grew up biking not that much because i live in an extremely hilly neighborhood in georgia and i was like no it's way am hot. i gonna be biking that uh -uh. and really fast cars yeah and very fast cars very narrow streets but um so a road bike is what i use in the summer but a mountain bike is what we use in the winter because they have bigger tires you can actually get studded tires to help you with traction and you can get what we call fat tire bikes which um is literally what it sounds like it's basically <laughs> a bike tire that is like four times as like large as a normal mountain They're bike huge. tire it just like gives you more surface area to be on and more traction um they are really loud though you can hear them from like a mile away <laughs> they kind of freak me out a little bit so basically when i say a winter bike i just mean like a mountain bike and then getting like leggings that have um like fleece lining because you got to keep yourself yeah. warm I was thinking like spikes on your wheels, you know. Yeah, really. you, oh, yeah. so yeah, that's the stud, that's the studded bike tires that you can get. I don't have that, but yeah, they are yeah. very helpful. Chris yeah, is nodding her head like she knows exactly yeah. what. Yeah. I do. I know. <laughs> do you bike as well? Uh, I haven't. I don't in the wintertime because I'm a giant klutz and we have slush, so that's mm. not a good thing. And it's. Um, we have like damp, humid winters. Mm -hmm. So being out like that, like it sits in your bones. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I have like, um, it, it's not, it's like a multi-purpose bike. So it's not as thin tires as a, a road bike, but it's not as thick as a, as a mountain bike, but I have seen the fat tire bikes and they're pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. They're wild. Like when I first saw them, I was like, what is this machine? Mm -hmm. Like I don't understand yeah, this cool. thing, but they are cool. It's yeah. like the yeah. pickup truck of the bike world. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. The most expensive model or, or the most fancy model, <laughs> yeah. I should say. Yeah. It's really crazy to see these people that are training in the summer. They use their fat, fat tire bikes to train. And so they're like in their Lycra suits, but they're on these like weirdly large bikes. It's very strange. <laughs> what about you guys? What are your guys' green hacks? Well, Jen, do you want to go next? Um, Chris just got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I can't remember if I've shared this one before. Since this is our two-year anniversary, I may have already <laughs> shared this. But in case the listeners haven't seen it before, um, this is my water bottle. It's glass. It's from lifefactory.com. I think I just bought it at like Whole Foods or something. But you can buy or natural grocers or Trader Joe's, whatever. Um, they also buy, they sell these like different types of lids. So um, so if you lose it or break it or whatever, you don't have to buy a whole new bottle, which is nice. So this, I just use this. So, um, and I filter my own water. So of course, all those water bottle drinkers out there <laughs> you have not other needed. options <laughs> yeah not needed right mm -hmm. yes unnecessary just filter water your also, own water water also tastes so great out of glass mm -hmm. it does yeah yeah i like it it's my favorite something about it 
Well, Chris, what is your green life hack this month? Um, slow fashion. So with COVID-19, oh. it's kind of like a perfect time to pick up a new hobby. And I've been knitting since I was like nine. Not very well, but I have been. Um, and then I started crocheting a couple years ago. But it gives you a new appreciation for fiber art for just clothes in general because it takes a long time to make so i made this hat Aww, it's crocheted cool. Oh, cool. so it didn't take me that long this is for my husband because he's got a giant head um <laughs> and this is the first pattern that i found that will actually fit his head um but yeah it took me an hour to make and oh, wow. um it's a ball of yarn but it just gives you appreciation for how long things take and just slows you down and it just I find it gives me um, a better appreciation so when I do have to buy something and I see the price tag I know I'm buying quality over price so I know yes it's expensive now but this piece is designed to last it's an heirloom piece so really in the grand scheme of things it winds up being cheaper mm -hmm. and there's something cool about knowing you made it yourself. Sorry. Yes, I love yeah. that. Yeah, I have a bunch of, I like, these are toques, not beanies. They're toques. toques. <laughs> <laughs> I hate beanies. Oh, it drives me crazy. That's not a word. Um, so I have a bunch of toques that I've made. My daughter's got one. Um, I like making scarves and blankets. I tried making a sweater. I'm going to have to try again. <laughs> it's very difficult um but yeah just pick up it's and it's super easy and it's not expensive to start crocheting and knitting and there's tons like, and tons of stuff on youtube there's also like some sentimental value to having mm -hmm. a piece of clothing made by a loved one that you yeah. just can't put a price tag on like you can't no i have mitts that my granny about. has made I, they were for my daughter but she doesn't like them i'm like i'm gonna wear them <laughs> and i've worn them for years because they were made by my granny and i love them Awesome. Yeah, I have a crocheted um, blanket my grandma made, and I'm trying to figure out how to store it right because I don't want it to get, you know, old and ratty, but mm -hmm. they're definitely special items. <laughs> Do you know about lavender keeping moths away? I have read that essential oils are good, and, but you're talking about sprigs of lavender? You can use sprigs of lavender. My um, mom and my sister are both fiber artists, so they have to store wool all the time. Um but if you have even just like lavender soap, you can put it in a, like a little muslin bag and put it in with your wool and it'll just keep wool like mm. moths out of there. Oh, cool. But yeah. Okay. Sweet. Yeah. I've heard cedar. I've heard all sorts of things, but yeah. no, don't put your stuff in plastic because it can get moldy or it can, mm -hmm. you know, harbor oh. things. So, mm -hmm. well, my green life hack is actually another podcast. Um, since we were talking about indigenous justice, I thought this might be of interest to our listeners. It's called This Land, and it's produced by Crooked Media, and it talks about the Supreme Court case that recently went through dealing with treaty rights um, for five different tribes, and it was actually in favor of the tribes for once. So um, it looks at, at that whole case, but also a lot of the stuff we've talked about here about land and how you know people were separated and how uh, the relationship to the land is so important and just gives you really a better look into the lives of indigenous people and how there are uh, the different misconceptions people have and how they're really just like any other city or community um, and people think that they're a lot of times different or backwards or whatever so really interesting it's called this land it's like a nine-part series 
produced last year, I believe. So take a listen if you're so inclined. Um, with yeah. that, we will go around and say how we can find you guys online. So where can local terrain be found? And also, if you guys would like to share your personal pages, you're welcome to, but you don't have to. Yeah, so you can find us on Instagram is simply at local terrain. And then we're also on YouTube by the same name, local terrain. And then one thing to keep in mind is we spell terrain T-E-R-R-A-N-E, which is the geological way of spelling terrain. And it simply means the landscape on top as well as everything beneath it. So that includes the soils and the bedrock. But yeah, local terrain. And then uh, you also have a personal Instagram that's also like sustainably driven. Yeah, um, we're also local terrain, www.localterrain.com. Oh yeah, that too. Um, <laughs> so yeah, my um, I have a personal like art account because I'm a printmaker and that is New Leaf Old Roots on Instagram. Um, I also have a website, which is newleafoldroots.com. If you, if you like art, that's what I do on yeah when i'm not doing this <laughs> and you've recently been doing uh work for like printmakers against racism right which is yeah like a... so gotta wrap it um <laughs> printmakers against racism is a movement globally for printmakers to produce art and then donate a portion of the proceeds of that art to a charity of choice and um wow i can't remember the name of the charity that i donated to last time <laughs> um but yeah, that's fun, <laughs> and I do that. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you. It's a great way to give back. And I'll have to check out your page to see what your your art. Um, yeah. Jen, where can we find you online? You can find me here at Sustainably Geeky. Woo! Heck Woo yeah. <laughs> we have exclusive access. Chris, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me here at Sustainably Geeky and on a bunch of our other geeky shows, Epically Geeky, which I think we're doing a show this Saturday, uh, Marginally Geeky, which we're doing one next week. Um, so you have a week, Jen. We have a week to finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Creatively Geeky. Um, and then on Instagram, uh, Witchy Time Traveler. It's a private account, but go ahead. Um, and yeah, and I just followed you too. So you followed. Oh, fun. Awesome. <laughs> Can I ask what you guys talk about on Epically Geeky? Oh, so many geeky things. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, this time, uh, what was it last time we did? Um, oh, pop no. Culture. <laughs> I we do a lot now. of pop culture yes. and like scenario-based stuff. So yes. like... Was it the the Halloween movies or scary movies or something? If oh yeah, it was a scary movie, uh, like tournament kind of like villain wise, like who would win. So it was like the thing versus like Dracula. And <laughs> then it got pared down to like I think at the end it was Alien versus Predator and who would win, and we voted. Oh, and my my daughter was the tiebreaker, I think, for a couple of them. Because so like a, a like a Halloween battle royale. Yes, <laughs> yes, that was the latest show. We do a lot of scenario-based discussions and or just, you know, we whenever a big movie comes out, we'll talk about it, like Star Wars or the Avengers or something. But yeah. 
Yeah, we're kind of all over the place with that one, but that's actually our parent show for Sustainable yes. Geeky and all the other. Oh, stuff. interesting. I started it all. Yeah, long time ago. <laughs> so, um, the charity that I forgot the name of is the First Nations Development Institute, which is actually okay. a great resource. Um, they do stuff with Indigenous communities across the country. Um, so they have funds for environmental stewardship. They have funds for um, cultivating um, na native foodways. So like educating native youth on like traditional foodways. They do, they have a COVID relief fund as well. Um, so they, they're a really good resource. Their website is really um, informative. And it's called First Nations Development Institute? Correct. Awesome. Look that yeah, up too. My my brain is so occupied by the election that everything else is just like falling <laughs> out of it. Imagine what else you're thinking about. Right? <laughs> we're recording this the day after the election for those listening, so yeah. we're a little on edge. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Yeah. Well, you um, can find me on all of the shows that Chris mentioned: Ethically Geeky, Marginally, and Creatively Geeky. Here, of course, on Sustainably Geeky, and on social media: um, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Het's Gonna Be Me. And then um, you can also find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as YouTube, um, Sustainably Geeky. And um, of course, anywhere you listen to podcasts, please follow us. If you're on iTunes, um, follow us, give us a, a rating. It really helps to get us out there and follow Local Terrain as well um, while you're at it. Um, we appreciate you guys listening and thank you so much to the Local Terrain crew for, for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge. You guys really, you know, gave us a lot to think about. And I think our listeners have some some solid action steps they can take now. So thank yeah. you so much for having us. It's yeah. been yeah. fun. It's been a good thing to look forward to. Oh, this, for sure. At this time. <laughs> and it was it was great to uh get some hands-on experience with some podcast veterans for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we appreciate having you on and for those listening, have a great rest of your This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network.